Hey Francis, do you need new investment ideas? No thanks, I've got all my cash tied up in Venezuelan crypto. Ah, how is Gringo Coin doing? It's pronounced Gringo Coin. My portfolio is now worth a billion Venezuelan bolivars. That's about three quid then. Uh, you're right. I should have got new investment ideas. Well, if you want to take back control of your finances, then Fortune and Freedom is for you. It was founded by Nigel Farage, who has over 40 years of experience in finance and politics. Fortune and Freedom is published by South Bank Investment Research and is for the investor looking to access a wide range of informed opinions on lots of different investing opportunities. Their brilliant newsletter covers everything from causes and the impact of inflation to the rise of cryptocurrencies, gold investing, and much more besides. Through their daily news commentary and special reports, Fortune and Freedom can give you more confidence in making informed decisions about what to do with your money. Simply go to fortuneandfreedom.com. That's fortuneandfreedom.com and sign up for a free newsletter that will help your money work for you. The link is in the description. The critical thing is, the government through Ofcom, the state will be deciding what jokes it thinks you should be able to hear and what jokes you shouldn't. Hello and welcome to Trigonometry. I'm Francis Foster. I'm Constantine Kisson. And this is a show for you if you want honest conversations with fascinating people. Our brilliant and returning guest today is the General Secretary of the Free Speech Union here in the UK. Toby Young, welcome back to Trigonometry. Thank you, Constantine. Thank you, Francis. It's been a while since we had you on the show. And look, the Free Speech Union has been doing incredible work. Only a few days ago, one of our uh, interns came in who does a bit of reading and research for us. And he's at university at the moment. And he was telling us that at his university, uh, some people were trying to shut down some kind of event that was going to happen that had something to do with free speech or whatever. And uh, they were considering shutting down. And then they went, actually, if we do this, Toby Young's going to come along and fuck things up. So, uh, And they, and they, they allowed things to carry on, basically, <laughs> right. uh, because well, of that. Yeah. And you're making great stuff you know, doing great stuff on other things. How's it going with the Free Speech Union? Yeah, it's going really well. Um, we've now got 9,000 plus members. We've got something like 17 employees. Um, you know, I'm working on it, you know, pretty much full time. Um, the demand for our services, you know, is almost limitless. We've just launched um, an FSU in Scotland. So we've opened a Scottish office and we've put together a really impressive um, advisory council in Scotland. You know, we've got Murdo Fraser, former deputy leader of the Conservative group up there, still an MSP. We've got um, Jim Sillers, former deputy leader of the SNP. We've got some trade unionists. We've got some poets, some writers, some intellectuals, a huge cross-section of people from, you know, every political side, all really concerned about the erosion of free speech in Scotland, particularly when the Scottish Hate Crime and Public Order Scotland Act mm -hmm. is activated. It's got royal assent, but it hasn't yet been activated. When it's activated, that's going to make, you know, free speech um, uh, under greater threat, I think, in Scotland than anywhere else in Europe. Yeah, well, and we're, we're going to talk about the online harms bill for the UK yeah. more broadly as well, because that's really important. But from as an outside observer, you know, Francis and I, we don't have any direct involvement with the FSU, although we obviously support what you're doing. I think you're both on the advisory. We are on the yeah. advisory. We've yeah. given no advice whatsoever, <laughs> which is for, for the massive benefit of the FSU, <laughs> I reckon. Yeah. But it seems to me from the outside watching that you keep winning battle after battle. 
you you defend people who get cancelled or fired or whatever. As I said, you are fostering a culture of genuine respect for viewpoint diversity in academia. You're helping people recover their reputation after they've been unfairly smeared and attacked. Do you feel that these the the the, the sum of these battles being won is helping us win the war, or are you more hesitant about that? I'm a little more hesitant. I mean, I don't want to sound too pessimistic. And I think the war is winnable. Um, but it's not going to be winnable particularly quickly. It feels like a kind of generational battle um, rather than something that can be won overnight. Um, you know, if you think about the long march through the institutions, that's taken, you know, 70 years. Um, so it's not that surprising if people have dedicated themselves to capturing, you know, the commanding heights of the cultural economy, that, that those heights are now captured and to recapture them or at least to um, decouple them from you know this kind of these these kind of woke cultists um, uh, is, is not going to be something that can be accomplished overnight you know I don't think it'll take 70 years and I think the presence of social media kind of accelerates these cultural shifts so you know it's possible um, things may improve a lot over the next five to ten years and what made you start the free speech union Toby it was partly my own experience of um, being cancelled at the beginning of 2018. Um, I was appointed to the Office for Students, which is um, uh, the university's regulator in England, um, by Theresa May. And um, because I was a political appointee um, to a public role, um, you know, um, all the enemies of the government kind of uh, decided to kind of do some offence archaeology on me looking at everything I'd said or written or tweeted, you know, dating back to the 80s. And um, one person literally dredged up something I'd written in 1987, which was 31 years earlier. And, uh, and of course, because I've been a, you know, a, a, a journalist kind of, um, and a fairly kind of provocative, controversial journalist for more than 30 years, it, it didn't take them long to find unsuitable material. Um, and uh, so I, I stepped down from that position after about a week, you know, the urging of um, various government ministers and officials. Um, and uh, and then, you know, um, the mob then came for me and all, all my other positions. And I ended up having to step down from five positions in total, including my full-time job, which paid the mortgage. And um, and that was kind of a, 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 an unpleasant experience. Mm. Um, and one of the really unpleasant things about it is that there was no organisation to turn to for kind of good professional guidance, you know, if I step down, is that going to help or is that going to make things worse? Should I resign or force them to fire me? Should I apologise or, or will that just be like, you know, blood in the water? Um, uh, you know, who do I turn to for good psychological counselling? And some people, you know, when they're faced with being targeted by an outrage mob, find it really psychologically traumatic, one of the things we've, we've found at, at the Free Speech Union. So I thought afterwards, you know, after the kind of dust had settled and I'd recovered, I thought, why not set up an organisation that can help people that find themselves in this situation? I mean, you think you can rely on your friends, and to a large part, you can. I mean, Louis, Louis uh, C.K. came up with a good line, which he, he got cancelled, obviously. <laughs> um, uh, he said, um, people tell you that when something like this happens, you find out who your real friends are. And that's true, but it's the wrong half. <laughs> um, in my case, it wasn't the wrong half. And, yeah, most of my friends did stick by me. But people are a bit reluctant to kind of stand up and defend you in public for fear that, you know, then the mob will target them. So to have a kind of professional organisation there to do that for you and offer you advice and put a kind of protective shield around you, I thought that would be, you know, a really helpful service, something that was really needed. And that was really the inspiration for the Free Speech Union. And what people think and get wrong about the Free Speech Union is they think it's just about helping people like celebrities, etc., radio presenters, 
But that's not the vast majority of the work that you do, is it? No, the vast majority of the people we help are ordinary people, um, uh, you know, from all walks of life. So, for instance, um, we recently came to the aid of a um, West Midlands train driver, a guy called Jeremy Sleeth, um, a Corbynista, actually. Um, And he, on on Freedom Day, July 19th last year, uh, he said on his private Facebook account, um, thank God the pubs are reopening. I didn't want to live in a Muslim alcohol-free caliphate for the rest of my life. And um, one of his colleagues complained. He was investigated and fired for gross misconduct uh, for something he said, you know, a mildly provocative, not terribly funny gag on his private Facebook account. That was enough to get him fired from his job as a train driver. And he came to us for help. We raised some money. Um, We took his uh, case to the employment tribunal and we successfully got um, uh, a judgment of unfair dismissal. Uh, And now they're agreeing the compensation he should be paid. But yeah, people like that are the people that come to us for help. Ordinary people, not big celebrities like J.K. Rowling who can look after themselves. Toby, before we get onto the online harms bill, which I think is really, really important for us to talk about, really important. Uh, I just as a, as a curious aside, we've seen in the last few days uh, Elon Musk's impending takeover of Twitter, if it does in fact happen, because it still hasn't been finalised. As the general secretary of the Free Speech Union, what do you make of sort of one man taking over one of the crucial platforms in which public debate happens. And of course, I think he's expressed some principles that the three of us would agree with, mm. but the principle of one person having that much control. Are you are you optimistic? Are you concerned? Are you both? Like, where, where, where do you sit on, the, on yeah, that issue? I'm not kind of um, too troubled by the fact that, you know, one guy is exercising this extraordinary influence um, you know, you could say the same about Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook. Um, but I am troubled by, by, by Mark Zuckerberg. <laughs> okay, but it's not people. People, people, people objecting to it are objecting as though something like this has never happened before. This is an unprecedented yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, example of one man ex- yes. ex- exercising this extraordinary influence. When you know, you know, social media companies, successful internet companies, search engines—they're all owned by you know a handful of billionaires. Yeah. So you know, okay, you can change the system, um, but there's nothing kind of particularly unusual or sinister about what's just happened. And actually, in a way, I think it's an example of capitalism working the way it should, not an indictment of capitalism. You know, it's a market correction. There are all these big tech, social media companies, search engines, which are pretty much all progressive in one one form or another. Um, uh, so it's great that someone's come in who doesn't share that agenda necessarily and believes more strongly in free speech. Um, you know, that's an example of a market correction. So, you know, I, I think it's a good thing. Um, you know, whether he'll actually kind of turn Twitter into the platform we'd all like it to be remains to be seen. What I hope he'll do is rather than overhaul Twitter's content moderation policies. Um, uh, I hope that um, he'll outsource the content moderation. So uh, essentially say to people, look, it's up to you to censor what you want to censor. It's up to you. If you want to take a risk, if you say, I don't mind being exposed to misinformation or hate speech, uh, then, you know, then, then, then it, what they see on Twitter needn't be filtered. If they want to just have civil, grown-up, respectful conversations about important public policy issues, then they can turn all the filters on so they kind of screen out the trolls. But it should be up to the individual as to the risk they're prepared to take. It shouldn't be imposed upon them top down by, you know, 
content moderators in Silicon Valley. So I, I hope that's the I hope that's the way forward. Toby, when you said if they want civil discussions, I'm like, get off Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> that's what you need to do. That will be but you, well, you, could, you could create a kind of, you know, um, a sub-community mm. within Twitter, which is kind of, um, uh, in which people kind of voluntarily um, screen out the kind of loud, you know, brash, vulgar voices. People just like us, basically. Yeah, yeah. so we would be, we would, no, yeah, we'd be, screen us out and, yeah. and have grown-up conversations. Uh, uh, Sorry. No, I was going to say, um, so let's talk about the online harms bill because this is what we've come to talk about primarily. Yeah. So let's get into it. What's the problem, Toby? Well, what is it, first of all? What is it and what is the problem with it? So the online harms bill, it's now called the, it's now called the um, uh, uh, online safety bill, um, uh, but it began life as, an, as, as the uh, online harms white paper mm. a few years ago. And Sajid Javid, when he unveiled that white paper, said his aim was to make Britain the safest place in the world to go online, which, you know, sounds to me like the most regulated place in the world if you want to set up a social media company. Anyway, um, uh, so it began life there and it was partly in response to kind of a moral panic about um, the, uh, uh, chil- uh, 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 how the internet was and social media was harming children, mm-hmm. causing them to self-harm, in some cases commit suicide, providing them with access to drugs and pornography and so on and so forth. So a moral panic about how children were being kind of corrupted, led astray, harmed mm-hmm. by, you know, the Wild West. And um, and so they brought it in, and it's now kind of it's now kind of gone through a kind of evolutionary process. And the latest iteration of it is the second draft of the online safety bill. Um, and I'll set out the kind of initial case against it. Then let's try and steel man the online safety bill, and I'll then try and set out the case for it from a free speech point of view. And incredibly, there is a free speech argument for it, and Nadine Dorries has made that argument. So we'll look at that, and then tell you why I don't think the free speech case as she's making it for the bill is very compelling. Um, <laughs> that doesn't sound too much like a 40-minute lecture. Um, so the kind of... Keep it to 20. <laughs> keep it to 20. So, um, so on the face of it, the reason for concern um, is that um, uh, it will create a duty of care. It will impose this new legal duty on social media, big social media companies, search engines, Google, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube... Um, uh, whereby um, those companies will have to remove harmful content, uh, by which they mean not just content that's harmful to children, but also content that is harmful to adults. Um, And um, if they fail to do so, they can be fined by Ofcom, who will be empowered as the new internet regulator. They can be fined 10% of their annual global turnover. So when you're looking at companies like Facebook, Google, Twitter, that's a huge, that's billions of dollars. So uh, uh, social media companies, search engines will have a powerful financial incentive to remove harmful content. And the really sinister thing is that um, it won't just be uh, content that's unlawful that they'll be obliged to remove. Um, They'll also be obliged to remove what has been called legal but harmful content. So stuff you can say offline, you won't be able to say online. So the fact that it's legal doesn't mean it won't be prohibited. Um, uh, and, and often the stuff that the big social media companies will end up removing, which is perfectly lawful, perfectly lawful, uh, will be stuff you know that that lobby groups, activists are complaining about. Uh, they'll say this is harmful to the LGBTQ plus community, um, or this is harmful to you know recently arrived migrants or whatever it is. 
and, and, and the company's kind of fearful that they might be fined, you know, these huge amounts by Ofcom will err on the side of removal, uh, censorship. Um, so that's the reason for concern. It's, gonna, it's, 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 it's been described as a kind of censors charter. And um, it, it means that um, stuff you'll be able to say, you know, in other countries, you won't be able to say here mm-hmm. online. Um, uh, it'll be, you know, one of the most censorious, heavily regulated, you know, environments for social media companies and search engines if they want to operate in, in the UK. Okay, um, so that's the sort of that's the sort of standard. That's the case against it. What is the case for it from a free speech point of view? Well, I made a couple of notes on the, on the train on the way here, trying to kind of think about um, how to steel man this from a free speech point of view. Um, so Nadine Dorries um, makes the following arguments and her ministers in favour of the bill from a free speech point of view. They point out that one of the things the bill will do uh, will be to repeal various communications offences, such as the Malicious Communications Act, which free speech campaigners have been campaigning against for some time. Um, the uh, communications offence under which um, uh, Count Dankula yeah. Um, yeah. was prosecuted, that'll be repealed. Um, and it'll, those communications offences will be replaced by a new harm-based communications offence, um, uh, which is um, instead of looking at the subject matter of the unlawful communication or the communication to determine whether it's unlawful or not, they'll look at the effect it has, the psychological effect it has on the recipient. Um, and um, it'll be unlawful, it'll be an unlawful, uh, unlawfully harmful communication if it causes psychological harm amounting to at least serious distress, if the person sending the message intended to cause harm like to a likely audience and the person has no reasonable excuse for sending the message. And Nadine Dorries and her ministers argue that this new harm-based communications offence, because it's replacing all these other communications offences which free speech campaigners like me don't like, um, it'll actually create a more permissive environment than the one we're currently in. So from a free speech point of view, we should welcome those ref- that particular cluster of reforms which were included in the bill. Um, she also says, and she said this on Twitter yesterday, I think in a debate with Fraser Nelson, that there's nothing in the bill as it stands to force social media companies to remove legal but harmful content. Um, uh, it, it, all they'll have to do is, if, if, if they, is agree terms and conditions with Ofcom. Um, and um, in those terms and conditions, yes, they'll be obliged to pledge to remove unlawful content, but they won't be required by law under this bill to remove legal but harmful content. If they want to do that, uh, they can. So if they want to say, if Twitter, probably not Twitter now, Facebook, if Facebook wants to say, we're going to prohibit this content, because even though it's lawful, we think it's harmful, they'll be able to do that, but subject to a couple of provisos. One of the provisos is that they have to give special protection to content of democratic importance and journalistic content. We'll get onto that in a minute. Um, and when removing content from their platforms, when removing lawful content, they have to have regard for freedom of speech. And Nadine Dory says um, that, you know, I'm not going to force these social media companies, at least not in this bill, um, to remove legal but harmful content. The only thing they'll be obliged to do will be to remove unlawful content. If they want to go beyond that, they can, uh, but they have to... Uh, do it subject to these various caveats, which will protect 
free speech. And she argues that this is the first time social media companies have had these free speech duties imposed upon them. So it's a better place from a free speech point of view than we're in at the moment. And then um, the final argument, um, the final pro-free speech argument, is that um, once a social media company has agreed its T's and C's with Ofcom, Ofcom will then hold that company's feet to the fire when it comes to enforcing those policies. So it'll have to enforce them consistently and non-arbitrarily and not in a politically biased way. And she argues that that'll make it impossible for Twitter, for instance, in future, to remove Trump from the platform, but not the leader of the Taliban or Vladimir Putin. Um, that, that, that social media companies won't be able to uh, selectively you know, apply their community standards and say, Trigonometry's interview with Kathleen Stock has breached YouTube's community standards, but Navarro Media's interview with George Galloway hasn't. You know, they'll have to be consistent. Um, uh, and in that way, uh, that, 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 that will uh, protect free speech and eliminate political bias on social media platforms. So that, that's sort of, that's, that's the case for it from a free speech point of view. And I think if you just go back over those arguments to tell you why I don't think any of them are particularly um, compelling. Um, so... Um, Yes, uh, I think the repeal of various communications offences uh, and the replacement of them by a harm-based communications offence, um, yes, that's in some ways attractive. It's more attractive than where we are now. And I think it probably will be a little bit more permissive. Fewer people will be prosecuted. I mean, not many people are prosecuted now, but even fewer in all likelihood will be prosecuted uh, for communications offences in future once this bill becomes law. Um, but the shortcoming of this approach of defining um, uh, uh, unlawful communications um, by looking at the impact they have on the recipient, uh, psychological harm likely to cause extreme distress, is it kind of, it, it, it's, it, it's creating this kind of responsibility for the state to protect people from psychological harm. And I think that is a very dangerous precedent and not not something the state should be in the business of doing. Well, you know? not least because psychological harm is entirely subjective. Well, there's, there's I, the subjectivity I, argument. You know, yeah. you, How we, are we going to measure it? We, well, we, so Francis could discuss both of our hairlines and we could, you know, yeah. one of us could be deeply offended by yeah. it, another one could see yeah. it as a joke, mm. yeah. right? And, and, and it says, and it, it, it says that um, if it's likely to cause psychological harm amounting to extreme distress to a likely audience. So on, you know, on Twitter... You say something, you think you're just saying it to your followers. But if one of them retweets it and they then retweet it, it goes viral. It ends up, you know, in the, um, uh, on the screen of an extremely kind of psychologically fragile person. It could actually cause them extreme distress. Um, but, um, you know, why should you be held responsible for that? Um, so, yeah, I think the idea that the state uh, should be in the business of protecting people from psychological harm. And as you say, it, 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 it's a sort of gold-embossed invitations to activists and lobby groups to say, that's psychologically harmful. That made me feel unsafe. Who are you to say that uh, my distress isn't serious distress? Is it because I'm a, uh, you know, is it because I'm a trans person that you're not taking my distress seriously? You know, you can just imagine a kind of, you know, a cascade of demands to remove content on the grounds that it's causing people who are quite psychologically fragile extreme psychological distress. So that, that's extremely dangerous and a really uh, uh, dangerous precedent, I think. Um, but okay, even setting that aside, um, uh, uh, you know, when, I, when, when, when me and 
the chief legal counsel of the Free Speech Union had a conversation with one of the ministers and some senior officials in the Department for Culture, Media and Sport about the bill. They offered this as a kind of quid pro quo. Yes, you know, in some respects, free speech will get worse because of this bill, but in others, it'll get better. And look, we're repealing the Malicious Communications Act. You must be happy about that. Well, yes, but one interesting thing is that these these, these, um, reforms to communications law will only apply in England and Wales. Um, they're not going to, because, they, uh, uh, you know, communications offences are a devolved area of legislation. So they won't apply in Scotland, they won't apply in Northern Ireland. In Scotland, you could be in the worst of all possible worlds, in which, you know, um, uh, companies, social media companies could be prosecuted, fined billions of dollars um, for um, uh, 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 posting or allowing people to post content that's harmful under these old communications laws. Um, so, so you know, it, 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 and it's gonna—it's kind of like an analog bill for a digital age in that respect to create kind of a different regulatory environment in England and Wales to the regulatory environment in Scotland and Northern Ireland. I mean, it's going to be an incredible headache for somebody who wants someone who wants to set up a compete, you know, a, a, a competitor to Twitter or Facebook. They're going to have to get their heads around, you know, the unbelievable patchwork quilt complexity of regulations in the UK. There won't even be one standard for the UK. It'll depend whether you're in Scotland, Northern Ireland or England and Wales. I mean, it's ludicrous. Um, uh, Toby, before we go, like... Yep. This is a Conservative government. This is a Conservative government bringing this in. If, you know, we're in an alternate universe and Corbyn won and they brought this in, I'd be like, this makes complete sense. What's going on? Well... And and um, that's absolutely true. Um, it, it's 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 baffling that a conservative government that claims to um, believe in free speech um, uh, and you know a, a small state um, mm. should be bringing in this sledgehammer of a bill, which is going to have an unbelievably chilling effect on free speech online. And and one particular interesting, you bring up bring up Corbyn, you know, Nadine's argument that nothing in this bill will force social media companies to remove legal but harmful content. Well, that's true, but it's, a, it's, it's, um, it's, it's quite a, um, a dishonest argument because what the bill does is it creates an opportunity, a mechanism mm. for the Secretary of State at DCMS, which is currently Nadine Dorries, mm. to um, um, bring forward supplementary legislation, probably in the form of a statutory instrument, mm. Um, uh, identifying what what are called in the bill priority harms. Those are things that social media companies will have to remove as a matter of priority. You know, if they don't remove them, they really will get fined. And it's when it's in that supplementary legislation, right. in that statutory instrument, that the legal but harmful stuff is going to be included. So it's likely, for instance, that social media companies will be told, you have to remove misinformation as a matter of priority. You have to remove hate speech as a matter of priority. Doesn't matter if it's lawful. If it's harmful, according to this nebulous, open-ended definition, you'll have to remove it. Um, so that's where the real mischief is going to occur in this supplementary legislation. But Toby, what Francis is getting at, and we'll, we'll get to the rest of your points yeah. in a second, is you know you know Boris Johnson, yeah. right? You 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 you've studied together. We were told, and look, neither of us is, by the way, a big fan, but of his. Uh, this is a, a, a liberal Tory. Who, who wants to reduce the size of the, the size of the state and and keep us all free, and then we had two years like we've just seen, and now this. How, how do you explain that? Um, um, I don't think he's a man um, uh, unduly constrained by principle. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think I think he has I think he has instincts, 
um, but they can be quite easily overridden. I mean, I think he, I think he, I think he has a libertarian kind of default response, and I think that's partly why he didn't want to plunge us into lockdown initially. Um, you know, in February, March, twenty twenty. But they were quite quickly, you know, um, cast aside when he came under a lot of pressure from mm. colleagues and officials, scientific advisors, to lock us down. You know, they proved to be quite fragile principles. Um, and I think in this case, um, you know, I don't think he's really applied himself to the bill. I mean, quite often the reason he he can be easily kind of um, bullied by kind of more authoritarian colleagues into abandoning his libertarian instincts is because he hasn't done his homework. He hasn't mastered the brief. You know, they'll make a number of arguments and he won't know what the counter arguments are. So if Nadine Dorries and, you know, if, if it comes up in cabinet, she's 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 sort of mastered this brief. She'll say, no, Boris, no prime minister. It's going to it's going to actually um, help from a free speech point of view. And she'll make all the arguments I just summarized. And he won't know what the counter arguments are. Um, uh, you know, but so isn't it, that his job? Well, <laughs> I think I think he's I think I think when Michael Gove said back in what 2016 that he wasn't temperamentally suited to be prime minister and that's why Michael Gove decided to throw his own hat into the ring and withdraw his his support um I think that's what I think that was what he was sort of getting at that he he's quite he's quite kind of he has quite a short attention span he's not good at kind of sitting down and going through his boxes He's not really interested in the kind of nitty gritty, the minutiae of kind of policy documents and proposals. And that's why, you know, I think Dominic Cummings refers to, refers to him as Trolley because, you know, his nickname behind closed doors in Downing Street is Trolley because he's like a wonky supermarket trolley that kind of veers around according to whoever's pushing it or he's bumped into last, you know. And I, you know, maybe that's a slight exaggeration, but I think, I think that's the explanation for why someone like Boris, who styles himself this great kind of libertarian Rabelaisian and Falstaffian kind of, uh, you know, freedom-loving, you know, yeoman, why he is bringing in, his government is bringing in this bill because he doesn't, he's not, he's, um, he's, he's easily bamboozled and easily kind of knocked off course and his, his libertarian instincts can easily be kind of uh, submerged under all this kind of pressure and, yeah. I think that's probably the explanation for that. But, but just back to your Corbyn point, um, it, it, because the bill creates an opportunity for the Secretary of State to um, uh, uh, come up with these priority harms, where, and that's where the legal but harmful stuff comes in. You know, okay, Nadine Dorries may not may not go completely over the top when she brings forward her supplementary legislation, and it's debated in the House of Commons. It may be reasonable. We may think, well, actually, you know, the definition of hate speech in this in this statutory instrument isn't too bad. You know, um, but what's to stop you know a successor? You know, let's say Keir Starmer wins the next general election. Not out of the question at this point, um, and appoints Chris Bryant or Dawn Butler um, uh, as Secretary of State at DCMS. They would then have the power under this bill to bring forward another statutory instrument identifying all these priority harms. That's where we could really get into a kind of unbelievably sensorial. Right, you have to legislate climate. for the future possibility yeah, that this your bill political is not future proofed, not yeah. future proofed right. against political change. Um, you know, it, it's bad enough under a supposedly liberty-loving conservative government. What if we have something like a Corbyn-led Labour government who have absolutely no regard for free speech? You know, they'll have the powers at their disposal to impose uh, unbelievable amounts of censorship on what we can say online. You know, it'll be at their fingertips thanks to this bill. Hey, Constantine. 
What razor do you use? I use Russian blade forging fires of Ural Mountains, hardened in the winters of Siberia, purified in the river of the Volga, and sold over-the-counter at Boots in Moscow. Is it good? No, it sheds more blood than Uncle Vlad cracking down on political protests. In that case, you need to try Harry's razors. I use them myself, and look how clean and smooth my face is. Yes, my face would also be that smooth if I had no testosterone. Harry's is offering an incredible deal where you get a free trial set of Harry's products, which includes one five-blade cartridge, foaming shave gel, travel blade cover, and a free travel size face wash. How much? It will only cost you £3.95. That's just £3.95, which is the cost of the packaging and the posting. This is a good deal. Yes, and all their products are dermatologically tested and formulated by Harry's experts. Their skincare products are alcohol and cruelty free. Alcohol free? Is this supposed to be a good thing? Harry's razors have a weighted handle, not a cheap plastic one that you get in some mainstream and supermarket brands. This gives you greater control when you're shaving and means you're less likely to cut and nick your skin. Just head to harrys.com forward slash trigger to have your set delivered and start shave plan. That's harrys.com slash trigger and it's just £3.95 for a trial set. There are certain elements of the bill that I do agree with, Toby. For example, the cyber flashing element of it. I don't understand or, or what, why people, especially women, should be subjected to people sending pictures of their yep. genitals, for instance. Yep. You know, protecting kids from pornography. You know, we've both been involved in education. That is a massive problem that not enough people are talking about. Yep. So there are elements of it which I'm actually on board with. What yep. do you think about that? No, I, I think I agree. I mean, I think there are some aspects of it um, which are completely defensible, um, like, you know, prohibiting cyber flashing. Though you get into a slightly grey area when it's cyber flashing between consenting adults. Mm. That'll be prohibited too. Yeah. Um, uh, so that's kind of, uh, should we prohibit that? You know, why, why shouldn't you be able to send a dick pic to kind of um, Mrs. Foster, you know? If, if, because I'm if, socially <laughs> conservative, that's why. Well, that should uh, only be kept for a darkened bedroom. Yeah, uh, but I think, I think that the, 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 um, the clauses of the bill which are intending to protect children, you know, it's hard to argue with them. Mm. Um, but it's the stuff which is intended to protect adults yeah. from harm, including yeah. legal content. That's the kind of really pernicious, dangerous, censorious stuff that's going to have a chilling effect on free speech. Why should the government be able to decide on my behalf what I can and can't see, you know, if it's lawful? You know, it's one thing for Parliament to pass laws, you know, in a democratic process to prohibit certain things, you know, that's one thing. You, know, you can argue with that. Maybe majorities shouldn't be able to impose their kind of moral values on minorities and so forth. But, you know, that's one thing. But that isn't this. They're saying that even if a law hasn't been passed prohibiting certain certain content on social media, we will we will we will insist that social media companies remove it nevertheless under threat of being fined 10% of their annual global turnover. And that's like, well, why? why that's completely undemocratic. And, um, you know, um, why shouldn't I be able to decide um, what lawful content uh, I'm able to see, you know, on my phone, on my social media platforms? Well, Toby, the argument, and I, I do actually think for all my strong support for the idea of freedom of speech, uh, of course, you know my position on it, 
at the same time, I think the argument now is the harm side of these things is becoming more prominent because as these networks become bigger and they connect more and more people, the concern is, and it's not the example I'm about to give is not one in which I particularly share the analysis, but I can see a, sim- a similar example in which that would be the case is the banning of Donald Trump. Uh, at the very beginning of 2021. And the argument from the social media companies was, uh, this was an election in the most powerful country in the world with tons of nuclear weapons. And it seemed to them, I don't agree with this interpretation, but it seemed to them that there was essentially an attempt to overthrow the the uh, lawfully elected candidate by storming the Capitol. Again, I don't agree with that interpretation, but that's how they saw it. And they felt that given the potential for huge harm that could come from lawful activity. It's not unlawful to say on Twitter that you think the election is illegitimate or whatever. It's not against the law. You're allowed to. If you if you and I went down the pub, you could, you could say that, right? That's not against the law. But the impact of someone with, I don't know, 70 million followers mm. saying that over and over and over, they argue, caused people to get to that position where they are storming the capital and, and people die mm-hmm. in the process. Mm-hmm. Isn't that something that whether you like it or not, whether I like it or not, we do have to reckon with that ideas are powerful things and connecting billions of people together in a place where they can say things Mm. of that nature has real world impact. And as a society, like it or not, we're going to have to have some kind of reckoning with that. Well, I think um, I would accept that um, a limit should be placed on free speech um, whereby people shouldn't be free to say things which are likely to um, result uh, imminently in violence. You know, I think that that's a legitimate constraint, restriction on free speech. And maybe you could argue that that was a good reason, that was the rationale for banning Trump from Twitter. What he was saying you know, on the eve of the attack on the Capitol was inciting violence. Uh, and and, that, and anyway, if it was, then maybe that was a good reason. Um, but I think the difficulty with removing stuff, you know, people saying we think the election was stolen, for instance, mm. after Trump's been removed from the platform, um, is that um, actually that's not, it's, I think it's hard to make the case that that's likely to lead to imminent Right, user violence. 7345 saying the election was stolen yeah. isn't causing the, yeah. the capital and I, and I think I think that there was the argument that um, uh I think Louis Brandeis, who was a Supreme Court justice made in a famous case, I think in the 1950s, in which he said the um, uh, cure for bad information is not to suppress that information. The cure is more information. Sunlight is the best disinfectant. And the problem with banning stuff that you think is misinformation or is likely to cause insurrection um, is that um, by banning it, you're not reducing its toxicity. You know, you're forcing it underground. You're forcing it into kind of darker corners of the internet. You know, people who who are kind of inclined to be triggered by that stuff are probably going to find it anyway. Isn't it better that it should be on, you know, larger, more mainstream platforms where it can be challenged openly? You know, if you if you think the election was stolen, um, uh, uh, you know, and you, and you make that argument on Twitter and Twitter bans it, that's going to persuade you that you're right and that's why it was banned. It's going to persuade other people seeing that ban that there's actually something to it because otherwise, why would they ban it? They're obviously scared they've got something to hide. Whereas if you let them say it and then rebut it with a kind of overwhelming number of kind of facts with a kind of mountain of evidence to show it isn't true, 
um, then it's likely to kind of lose a lot of its power and lose a lot of its influence. And I, I think that I, sunlight is the best disinfection, I, I and that's a really you. good argument against suppressing even dangerous misinformation. I, I agree with you in in principle. I really, really do. And I'm obviously playing devil's advocate and trying to explore the argument here. But one of the things we do see on social media is that isn't what happens. When somebody says, I think this, it's not that there's an overwhelming barrage of counter information. It's that everyone's in their own silo now. And what happens is people who think A and people who think B are just in different spaces talking to themselves now. And so you're not getting that traditional idea of if we're all in a meeting with 300 people and you stand up and you go, I think COVID is caused by 5G and we need to go and blah, blah, blah. And 200 other people stand up and go, you're an idiot and here's why yeah. and blah, blah, blah. That's what you're talking about, but that's not what happens on social media. What happens on social media is one person stands up and says something, 200 other people agree, who already agree, and mm. they never see the people who mm. don't agree with them. I think that's a slight caricature. I mean, you know, we're all on Twitter. Sometimes you do see, you know, um, quite grown up, kind of well-informed, quite sophisticated, nuanced debates taking place yeah, of course. between people on completely opposite sides mm. of big contentious issues. And, you know, you see it on Facebook too. You see it, uh, you see it on YouTube. You know, it, it's, uh, of course, there are kind of people who don't want to hear the other side. And, you know, but I think it's hard to blame social media for that. I think, you know, we've naturally just become a more kind of politically polarised uh, society, both here and in America and elsewhere. And, you know, social media may have accentuated that. But, you know, it, it's not, I don't think it's the root of the problem. Um, I, I think there's another argument too. The argument against... Um, uh, banning hate speech. So the argument for banning hate speech is that if you don't, you allow these kind of toxic flowers to bloom and um, they could result in kind of unpleasant people getting elected, um, populist revolts and so on and so forth. Um, but um, uh, in Jacob Matcham Garmer's recent book on free speech, which was a history of free speech, he makes this really good observation um, about uh, Weimar Germany. And you probably know this, but in Weimar Germany, various forms of hate speech, such as anti-Semitism, were criminalized. And um, uh, various kind of prominent Nazis actually spent time in jail for producing, you know, publishing anti-Semitic material. Um, Hitler was banned for large parts of the 1920s um, in various um, German states. Um, uh, and none of that uh, did anything to undermine the kind of um, appeal and growth of the Nazi party. On the contrary, it allowed them to cast themselves as martyrs at odds with this kind of oppressive state that was kind of suppressing what they had to say because it was true. You know, it had the opposite of its intended effect. And I think that's generally, if you do try and suppress these right-wing toxic points of view, you know, you don't, you don't stave off another kind of Nazi victory at an election. You make it more likely. And we keep using the word harm. How do they define this word? Well, they, 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 I, they, 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 they I got, got the definition. I wrote it down here. It's, um, uh, yeah, uh, psychological harm um, amounting to at least serious distress. But unless, well, see, this is the problem. <laughs> Because what are you going to do? Everybody who then makes a complaint, are you going to have a psychiatrist come in and give them some kind of psychiatric assessment? Or how do, how do you define no, this? there's no requirement for, for a clinical assessment. No, I think it'll be subjectively defined. If someone claims that a, a post that they've read has caused them 
extreme psychological distress, then you'll have to take that at face value. But so, but let's flip it over and, and look at it another way. So my mother's Venezuelan. Socialism has been a disaster in my country. One of my cousins literally drinks rainwater from the tank on top of his house because the water, the running water in his house is so polluted that if he drinks it, it could very literally make him incredibly ill, even kill him. So what, someone puts a post advocating socialism on Facebook, I go, I'm distressed, take it down? Well, um, I guess this is where the um, protections for content of democratic importance come in. Mm. I mean, that, 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 this is one of the great, the, the, Nadine Dorries and the defenders of the bill make great play of this. If you want to make a political argument, doesn't matter if it causes people extreme psychological distress, it'll be protected because it's content of democratic importance and we don't want to censor those important democratic debates. But the, then the, the question becomes, well, who gets to decide right. what's uh, content of democratic importance and what isn't? You know, um, there was that recent, uh, tri- the Maya Force Data, the first Maya Force Data Employment Tribunal, in which the judge used this very sinister phrase in which he said that gender-critical views weren't deserving of respect in a democratic society. So, you know, according to that, you know, judge... On a, well, not the member of the employment tribunal, you know, he he didn't think that was content of democratic importance. Now, you know, um, uh, that that judgment was um, overturned in part by the employment appeals tribunal, and now the employment tribunal is taking place again, and we don't know what the outcome of that will be. But you know, for for for, for a figure of considerable authority to declare no, that isn't content of democratic importance because gender critical beliefs are not deserving of respect in a democratic society. You can imagine that kind of argument being made over and over again. And, you know, do we, how much do we trust Ofcom to get that kind of thing right? Don't forget Melanie Dawes, uh, the chief executive of Ofcom, said a couple of years ago that she didn't think that it was appropriate to feature anyone from the LGB alliance on a BBC News or ITV News discussion about the Gender Recognition Act because their views were beyond the pale. You know, and okay, she's revised that position now, but how confident can we be that Ofcom isn't going to make similar errors of judgment when it comes to deciding what issues are deserving of this protection because they're of democratic importance and what aren't? You know, I, I, I certainly don't trust them. I'd like personally to be able to make that decision myself and not trust to a regulator to make it on my behalf. I mean, there's another problem as well with protecting journalistic content. Mm. You know, who gets to decide who's a journalist? Right, are we journalists? What, is this journalistic yeah. content? You know, we'd have to ask Ofcom. You know, are they going to come up with? Are <laughs> I they going to come up? What they might say about that? Well, yeah. are they going to come up with a list of kind of approved? Will you have to be regulated by Ipso right. or mm. Impress? You know, uh, 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 and if you do, that's a way of bringing in state regulation of of the press. You know, until now, um, regulation of the press has been voluntary, um, and there was a huge battle that me and others fought to prevent it becoming, you know, regulated by a state regulator in the, in the aftermath of the Leveson inquiry. And we won that battle, but this looks like it's coming, that's coming back now through the back door. If they, if they can, if, if, if in order to be entitled to this protection, journalistic content, you have to be registered in some way. You have to satisfy... You've got to be on Ofcom the register. You know, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Why'd you point at me for? The register <laughs> problematic YouTubers. I think, I, think, I think I've been reassured that there won't be kind of a list of approved, you know, journalists and a list of kind of dangerous journalists um, that all you'll have to do to satisfy Ofcom that you are a legitimate 
provider of journalistic content. You need to have a proper complaints policy and an opportunity for people who think they've you know, been misrepresented to reply. So you have to offer people a right of reply. Mm. You have to have a proper uh, a policy about how you deal with complaints and factual corrections and you have to correct them and so forth. You don't have to be, regu- you don't have to be regulated by you know, a regulator like that. That's what they say. But I'm, you know, all these things can be kind of changed as soon as the bill becomes law you know, by a small amendment. So, so that's all I'm, quite scary. I'm very aware that you have to, to run. Uh, so we won't hold you too much longer. But you, you, the way you're talking about it, it sort of sounds to me like you've accepted that this bill is going to pass. Right. Well, what can people do before we let you go about yeah. this? Is there, an, do they write to their MP? Do they, you know, find out more from like what? What's what do we do? Well, um, I think politically, um, it is going to happen. I think it's 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 a it's a huge mountain to climb to actually derail this. Now, I mean, maybe that's not impossible, but it feels like that's kind of unrealistic. It's going to happen. There's a lot of political momentum. There's a lot of support for the bill in the House of Commons, even though the Conservatives have an 80-seat majority. Go figure. Um, So what can we do? Well, we can try and improve it. And what the Free Speech Union is doing is working with a number of lawyers and other lobby groups in this space to try and come up with a raft of amendments to make the bill better. So I referred earlier to this duty that the bill will impose on social media companies to have regard for freedom of speech when making a decision about whether to remove... (laughs) you know, harmful content. Um, But have regard is the weakest of the legal duties. So, you know, Twitter could say, we've been told that JK Rowling's posts are causing serious psychological distress to trans people. We've considered the free speech implications of banning JK Rowling from the platform and entirely dismissed them without a second thought. Um, uh, That would be satisfying the duty to have regard for freedom of speech. It requires you to do no more than just think for a second about the free speech implications and then entirely dismiss them. Um, So one thing we want to do, the the, the biggest amendment, the one we really hope we'll get through, is to strengthen that duty. So, you know, it becomes something just a little bit more onerous, like have particular regard for freedom of speech. We want that duty to be on the same, uh, have the same status, the same legal force as the duty of care. And if we can do that, that would go some distance towards improving the bill. I think another way you, you could kind of, in order to, con- you could say, let's amend the new communications offence. So in order to convict someone under this new harmful communications offence, um, you have to show that the person in the likely audience that was psychologically seriously distressed by this um, didn't consent to to it. So, you know, if you if you build a consent clause into that, you know, a person can't be prosecuted if all the members of the likely audience they thought it would end up, who'd end up receiving the message, if they'd all consented to it, if you had reasonable grounds for assuming they consented to it. And then you can build in a bit of this kind of, you know, what I was talking about earlier, kind of um, with people deciding for themselves what they can and can't see. And you could say, look, I, I just assumed that everyone that was going to see this message had consented to kind of, you know, um, uh, be, being in the kind of Wild West category. Um, and if they're not in that category, then they, it shouldn't have been sent to them. It shouldn't have been passed on to them. That's the person you should go after, not me. What does this mean for comedy, Toby? Well, um, uh, uh, Nadine Dorries said, uh, she actually gave us an example, Jimmy Carr's, um, joke about gypsies and the Holocaust mm-hmm. as an example of legal but harmful content that this bill would prohibit. So, you know, she actually Jesus honed Christ. in on a particular joke 
and said, that's the kind of thing this bill is going to put a stop to. So yeah, comedians should be seriously concerned. So, so hang on a second. So people will be able then to, let's say they watch Jimmy Carr's special, they will then be able to go after Netflix as a result of this. Well, I think Netflix will be covered under a new similar bill, which will apply a similar regulatory regime to on-demand audio-visual services. Let's translate it into Facebook, Twitter terms. If someone took that clip and put it on Twitter, on Facebook, and shared it, they could be liable to be prosecuted. Well, the the, the platform, um, which didn't remove it as soon as someone asked for it to be removed, they would be liable for prosecution. So they would never let that be published. They'd never in the let first. it be published. No, no. Right. Assume, so we're getting to the point. Kind of so is, we're getting to the point where the government is going to censor comedians' jokes, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Ofcom will be in the business of of, of censoring jokes. Yes. Yeah. And I've met Melanie Dawes, and she doesn't strike me as having a particularly good sense of humour. So that's reassuring. That, but I mean. That's, that could be unfair, actually. Look, forget about her. No, no, I don't no, give no, a shit no, about no, her no, sense no, of humor. No, no. We're talking about a government yeah. body or a, a state body deciding what jokes are allowed to be told. Yeah, which is ridiculous. Yeah. And, and yeah, the, the critical thing is the government, you know, through Ofcom, the state will be deciding what jokes it thinks you should be able to hear and what jokes you shouldn't. It'll, it, it's putting itself in the business it's like the Lord Chamberlain of old deciding what plays can be put on in the West End and what can't because some people have to be protected. What if your servants read Lady Chatterley's Lover? What effect <laughs> would it have on them? You know, the state is resurrecting this, right. this, this um, uh, responsibility to protect people from their own worst instincts, to stop them from seeing legal content but could be harmful. They're not the best judges of, of whether that's going to harm them, cause them psychological distress or not, what effect it's likely to have on their behaviour and their families. No, we are the best judges of that and we get to decide. And so what, where is Netflix in all of this then? Well, I think there's a separate media bill which will um, regulate um, on-demand streaming services like Netflix. I don't think Netflix is within scope of this particular bill. I think YouTube is, but Netflix isn't. But there's another, but because of that, they've got this other bill ready. Um, which is gonna, which is going to kind of mean that they can regulate Ofcom can regulate Netflix, um, you know, Apple TV Plus, Disney Plus, etc. So eventually, it's going to be the government dictating what you can and can't say online, what you can and can't laugh at. What? Yeah, and the interesting thing is that you'll be able to say it on you know, you'll be able to make the dangerous joke on stage. Provided yeah. someone doesn't film it and then put it up online. <laughs> it just You just won't be able to make the same joke online. No. Stuff which it's lawful to say won't be lawful to type after but, this bill becomes But then real. that has an effect on people's psyche because we, well, we all now spend so much time online. Right. So that is going to then filter into real life. Well, there is a, there is a, there is a quick fix. VPN. You know, if, if you can access the internet using a VPN, which, which places you, you know, in Florida rather than London, then you'll be able to see all this unregulated content. I mean, what it will mean effectively is that if you're accessing all this content from the UK, um, or rather from England and Wales, depends where they are in the UK, as you said earlier, but if, if you're here and you're trying to access that content, there's lots of stuff you won't be able to see that you would be able to see if you lived somewhere else, almost anywhere else, but particularly in America. Um, so I think, I think there'll be a massive surge in the use of VPNs because people just won't want the government to protect them in the way it's proposing to do. 
Well, that is quite a sobering thought, Toby. Uh, listen, thank you so much for coming back. I'm sure this is an issue we'll be talking more and more about because I find that really, really genuinely troubling. It is. It's, it's really scary. It, it, it's, the, it's the greatest blow to freedom of speech, I think, of our generation. And it's a really significant battle. And I would just urge people who want to join this battle to join the Free Speech Union and help us wage that battle. Toby, thank you so much. We're going to ask you a couple of questions from our supporters for our supporters before we let you go. But thank you for joining us and thank you for watching and listening. We'll see you very soon with another interview or or show. All of them go out at 7 p.m. UK time while we're still allowed. Exactly. And for those of you who like your trigonometry on the go, it's also available as a podcast. And that's probably going to be fucked as well. Take care and see you soon, guys. We have to persuade young people for social justice reasons. As a wokester, you know, you should be defending free speech. Before you go, consider joining our exclusive member feed. As a member, you'll get ad-free and extended interviews. Click the membership link in the podcast description or find the exclusive episodes link on your podcast listening app to join us.